Scripture reading today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 16, and chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was in the island called Patmos, an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. I'm guessing that many of you have, are familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages, which was written years ago. It's by Gary Chapman. It was like number one on the New York Times bestseller list for a while. And it's a, it's a book that describes how people operate in relationships. So it describes that people generally like to give and receive love in one of five ways. So here's, here's some of the, here's the five ways. Words of affirmation, physical touch, Gifts, um, acts of service, and quality time. And, and the, the premise of the book is that every person has a, has of all those love languages, there's one that every person kind of tends toward, one of the five, and you tend to both um, give love that way and also interpret love from someone else best through that particular love language. And, and we, we go around and we do this all the time, and, and, and it's helpful. Some of you have looked at this in premarital counseling or, or talked about this with uh, a significant other, like, what's the way that you like to receive love? What's the way I like to receive love? We've talked about this as a couple. Susan's love language is, uh, is words of affirmation. Mine is gifts of technology. <laughs> I mean, actually, uh, acts of service. And, you know, as, as the book describes, we've got to learn you know, how to relate to each other. But I think that there's two categories where this hypothesis about love languages totally and completely breaks down. One is with children. My children, 
no offense guys, are black holes for love languages. They want them all. They want all five, all the time. Acts of service, physical touch, gifts, quality time, everything. You know, they, they want it all the time. And, and children are black holes with, with regard to how they receive love. But the other is God. Now, you think about God and, and the way that we want to receive love God, from God, the, the kind of love language that most of us would like would be what? Gifts. Gifts. God, could you show up and provide what I want? My life is not going as I planned. Some of you are struggling this week with uh, lacks in your life. You're, you're like, I could use God's showing up on time with the gifts that I want in the way that I want it. But I find that God, most of the time, seems to be speaking a different language than us. His love language seems to be completely separate from what we would like to receive from him. And you could ask the church at Smyrna about this. This is a church that's going through intense suffering. This season we're looking at these letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches. And and today we're on on the second letter, which is to the church in Smyrna. And the letters follow what's really a route of a mail carrier. You can look at the... The letters, you can trace them out on a map, and you can see that basically somebody's just delivering these letters. I sometimes wonder what it would be like if Jesus wrote us a letter. What would he say, the letter to the church at Liberty Fairmount? What would, what would be in that? What, what commendations and what rebukes? I, these people must have been very surprised. We got mail from Jesus this week. Hmm. But even though this is a letter to a particular historic congregation that really existed, that had people whose names they all knew. And even though it's that, a lot of Bible scholars have said, this is kind of interesting. Because as you look at the New Testament, there were not just seven churches. There were lots and lots of churches and lots and lots of cities at this time scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So why why these seven? And a lot of scholars have said, this is because these seven churches really represent... Pretty much the breadth of what churches go through, or what churches are like. In other words, these are not just letters to some ancient people. We're not just reading someone else's mail. These are letters to us. They represent different types of people, different types of situations where we all find ourselves. And therefore, they are very much to us. These people in the city of Smyrna were struggling. They were under intense trial. Uh, Here's how how what we read about in this this letter. It says first that they're under tribulation and poverty. Their names are being slandered. They're about to be thrown in prison. And some will face death. The city of Smyrna was well known for being a place where people did not just honor their leaders, but worship them. You know, we honor our presidents. You can go across our country and see scattered, peppered throughout our country, they have these presidential libraries. And you can go and see artifacts that belong to John F. Kennedy. You can see things that belong, the books that belong to Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan or Harry S. Truman. But in the first, these first centuries of the church, Smyrna was a place where there weren't presidential libraries. There were presidential temples. There were temples to the Roman emperor. And you could go through the city of Smyrna, and these people, the Christians in that city, walked by these temples every day and were viewed as people who were not just unpopular because they refused to worship the emperor, but unpatriotic. These people were put to death because of their unwillingness to worship, to participate in the worship of the emperor. 
And we read, there are famous stories from the city of Smyrna. People in Smyrna were put to death by burning at the stake, by being thrown in the, in the gladiator games to wild animals. Some had holes bored into their skull and molten metal poured in till they died. I'm not being gross. I'm not just trying to, like, shock you. This is history. The most famous person from Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. His death is incredibly famous. He was 86 years old. He was the bishop of the church, a very gentle and yet a man led by conviction. And as he stood before the Roman proconsul, this Roman proconsul had pity on this old man. And it was like, look, you don't even have to worship. If you could just say, Caesar is Lord. If you just take a little pinch of incense and burn it, we can save your life. Polycarp said this right before he was burned. He said, 86 years I have served Christ. He has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And he faced the flames. These are people who knew suffering. These are people who understood pain. Suffering always reveals character. My friend Dave White, who I've had speak many times at Liberty before, this is his illustration. He says, imagine two tea bags that are lying on the counter, and you don't know which, what, what they are, what's, what kind of tea they are, unless you're a tea connoisseur and can smell them and somehow figure this out. You might, you might know, but how do you find out what's in the tea bag? You put it in hot water. You pour the hot water on the tea bag. You immerse it. You let it steep, and then you taste it. And you find out if what is inside is bitter or what is inside is sweet. Pain. Suffering in our lives. It's only when hot water, when you're in the hot water, that what's inside is really exposed. It really comes out. You know, suffering has a very disorienting effect on our souls, doesn't it? In the middle of pain... In the middle of pain, it's hard for us to see anything else. It's hard for us to see beyond what's right in front of me and the trial I wish I could get out of. It's hard for us in the middle of pain. We feel directionless. We feel lost. Uh, we wish we had a compass that pointed us to Jesus, pointed us to like God and why this is happening. And some of us feel like we're like looking at the dial and the, 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 the little needle's just spinning. Where, what's going on? This is why many people who suffer... It's not just a disequilibrium. But end up in a place of saying, God, where are you? Do you care? Do you you even know what's happening to me? This is why we need to listen to this church. The people in Smyrna are one of two churches out of the seven that the letters go to that have no rebuke. Jesus doesn't say, this is, I have a, this is my problem with you. I have this against you. He doesn't say that to this church. These are people who knew how to suffer well. And they're commended. We need to hear what Jesus says to these people. We who deal with suffering. We who deal, every one of us, whether you have in the past or one day will, you either need to take this letter out and read it, or you need to file it away. Because this day will come. Let's look at what Jesus says to this church. 
As I said last week, I love to preach through the book of Revelation. Because people... This is a very confusing book to a lot of people. People are like, what is this book about? It's full of all kinds of interesting word pictures. And a lot of folks think this is the revelation of God's secret plans. God, How God is going to bring catastrophe on the end of the world. That's not what this book is about. This book is a revelation of Jesus. It's a picture for us of Jesus. And we need some new pictures of Jesus. I heard an interview recently with a pastor who grew up in the Bronx, a really rough neighborhood. And he, as he was growing up, he was involved in church, but he hated church. He's like, he, he remember, he described seeing pictures of Jesus on the Sunday school walls. And there were pictures of Jesus uh, that he looked way too white, his hair was way too combed and coiffed and, you know, looking, looking like all that. And he's knocking at a door, or he's in prayer. And he said, that guy would never have stood five minutes in my neighborhood. And one of the things that really grabbed him as a young man was reading these letters to the the churches. Because we read here in Revelation 1, this description of Jesus in his power. Jesus risen from the dead, Jesus glorified. And you don't get the, the, the Jesus knocking at the door with the coiffed hair. You get Jesus brilliant. You get Jesus in full power. You get Jesus with unlimited authority. And as we we read here, in each of the letters, there's a little phrase about Jesus that kind of ties in with their situation. Here we read about Jesus described as the first and the last. It it goes back to Revelation 1.18 where it says... Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. So why? What possible difference does it make to know that Jesus is the first and the last for people who are going through intense trial, who are suffering grievously? So what? For many of us, that sense of being discombobulated, this is good news. We need to hear, yes, Jesus is the first and the last. He knows what's going on. You know, we ask in the midst of prolonged suffering, will this ever end? Is this just a dark tunnel and I'm going to get to a place where it just stops? It's just a dead end. Or is there a light? Is this moving somewhere? Is Is there a so what? Is there a so that to my suffering? Jesus is the first and the last. This is how Jesus is revealed in this passage. What does it mean that Jesus is the first? It means He is the source. Everything that comes through human history, every event, every action, passes through the fingers of Jesus Christ. He is in absolute control. There is no day that He is asleep at the wheel. He's gone. It says He is the first. He is the source. From whom everything derives. He is also the last. He is the goal and the end point. There is a purpose to which he is taking this world. There is a purpose through which he is taking your life. There is a purpose through which your life fits into a larger fabric of what he is doing in this world. This is the so that. Jesus. There, there's, there's purpose behind our sufferings. Even if we don't know it. There's a, there's a source God is in control, and there's an end. 
Now, what about Satan? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. What about Satan? Satan comes up in this passage. Some of you are like, gosh, I didn't know that that was this kind of church. You are people who believe in the guy with the forked tail and the pitchfork? Really? You know, we won't stand by, I'm not going to stand by a cartoonish picture of what Satan's like, but yes, the Bible clearly affirms a literal devil, a Satan, and and we're not naive to believe this. Let me describe you what is naive. So just this week, you turn on the news on your radio, you're, you're listening to KYW, you're listening to, to uh, uh, 90.9, you're listening to the news. And as they go through the news, they always tell you things in the business part of the news that I, I've been surprised that I haven't noticed before. So, for example, you'll hear in the business section of the news, the market responded today to news of the unemployment report. And I've always been like, yeah, the market responded today. Yeah, they did that. And I was like, wait a minute. What is the market? Is the market a person out there? No, the, the market is a bunch of investors buying and selling. Those people who make up the business news, they don't have any idea why the market jumps up and down. They come up with reasons and they say, okay, the market's responding today to this. They don't really know that. And yet we buy that all the time. This week, I heard a reporter say, in describing the events going on in Egypt, said, you know, oil doesn't like unrest in the Middle East. And I was like, really? I've never heard oil speak before. See, do you realize how much we buy that kind of stuff? And yet when it comes down to a, a, an intelligent being who wishes our destruction, we're kind of, oh, that's naive. Really? I think there's a lot more evidence for this one. There's a lot more evidence for an intelligent being who desires our destruction. So look, what we see in this passage about Satan, it's, it's helpful in helping us to understand the devil's power, the extent to which your sufferings are under his control or not. Read what we, we it, sees here, it says here. It says the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Right? But it also says that you may be tested. That's a really important statement because it says there are two hands involved in some of your sufferings. There are two hands at work. There there is an intelligent evil force that desires your destruction. The devil wants to throw you in prison, he says. Yet, for what purpose? For your testing. That's, That's not... Testing is not what Satan is about. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to destroy. His purpose is to undermine your faith, not to test it. See, what is it saying? It's saying there are two hands at work in suffering. Sure, Satan is alive and real and at work in the world, and he has some authority, some ability to bring suffering on the lives of Christians. And yet, it's not. he's not... Running free, causing havoc. God is at work, and He uses those trials to test our faith, to strengthen us. This is, this is helpful. You can look at other places in Scripture about this. This may be confusing or new teaching for you, but in, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Simon Peter, He says, Simon, this is right before the crucifixion, Satan has asked if He could sift you like wheat. He's going to sift you like wheat. 
And you see this picture. You're like, wait. Jesus is saying, Satan is going to come and like mess with this guy. And yet, it also affirms that God is in control. Satan came and asked for permission lot for this. So that, and what is God's purpose for, for Simon Peter's life in this? You can look back in the Gospel of Luke and read this. He uses it to actually strengthen his faith. He uses it to humble him. He uses it to help, to help him have a healthy amount of self-doubt and a healthy amount of confidence in God's power. So you can never, you, you should be wary when people say, Satan is doing this in my life. You know, Satan tempted me. Satan's, Satan's coming after me. Because in this we see it's a little bit more complicated than that. Satan has purposes, and yet God is ultimately in control. He, he has greater purposes. Satan desires your destruction. He may bring things across your plate, sufferings in your life, hardship. And you may say, this is from the devil. that can't come from anywhere else. And we have to say, wait a second. God's hand has not been removed. God intends this for my good. He desires my strengthening and my growth and my maturity. He desires, he, he's allowing this to come into my life, not for my destruction, but for me to grow in this. See, we have to, you have to, you have to look at the whole passage. What else does it tell us? It tells us one more thing. It says, our bridegroom knows the extent. In this passage, the people in Smyrna are told, you're going to suffer for how long? How long? Ten days, right? It says, you're going to suffer for ten days. Now, we know from history that Polycarp of Smyrna was burned at the stake about 25 years after this passage was written. So it wasn't just ten days. So is Jesus lying? No. In the light of the fullness of human history, this is happening for about ten minutes. Your suffering is going to go on. It's not going to be great, but there's an end to it. Jesus is not giving them a duration. He's giving them, he's saying, I have prescribed limits. Yes, there is a real Satan at work in this world, but he has not given free reign to do whatever he wants. This isn't like uh, two equally patched, uh, equally matched opponents. This isn't Evander versus Hollyfield, you know, Jesus versus Satan. What's going to happen? Who's going to win? We see in the book of Revelation, Satan is real, but he's on a chain. He has the power to tempt and to try and to make things difficult for, for God's people, but he doesn't have the ultimate power. He is under God's control. And there is a limit, therefore, it's written to this church, there's a limit to your suffering. Your bridegroom knows what you're going to go through. And he was there at the first, he's there at the last. He is ultimately in control. I know that these are disturbing words to some of you. But we need a mature view. We need a more nuanced view of our circumstances. Right? Because your suffering leaves you looking at the dial of the compass and it's just, you're like, the needle's just spinning. I don't know what's going on. I don't know which way is up. And you have to hold on to these words. Jesus, the first and the last. Jesus who knows what's going on. So, let's talk about you. That's what we want to talk about anyway. Let's talk about us. What does this mean for us? I mean, it's very unlikely that you will face the kind of sufferings that the people in Smyrna have. It's very unlikely that you will be faced with loss of life, that you will be faced with um, being slandered, that you're going to be burned at the stake. Many of us are not going to face those things. And yet, we will face suffering. It is a guarantee of this life. The curse 
is real. Its effects are all around us. And your relationships, some of you are or will suffer major issues within some of the relationships to people closest to you. You'll suffer loss of people dear. You'll suffer setbacks in your health and in your job. And how will you handle those things? If you're like me, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of pain, I cry out and say, God, why is this happening? This isn't normal. Something must be wrong with the world. I love these words from C.S. Lewis. He says, we shouldn't be surprised if we're sort of in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels it would be natural if things now, from now on, went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money issues, new kinds of temptation, he's disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent of in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him up, is forcing him on, to a higher level, putting him in situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of long before. It seems to us so unnecessary, but that is because we have not had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing that he means to make out of our lives. Jesus talks about this. And in another of John's writings, Jesus talks about the purposeful, regular use of sufferings to transform us. And we see that this isn't abnormal. This isn't weird. This is a normal part of God's plan. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he's about to die, and he, he gives them some of these final words. He says this, I am the true vine. You are the branches. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it might become more fruitful. Using this analogy, Jesus is saying, I have plans for your life to transform you into something that you never could have imagined before. What do do we want from God? What's what's our love language? We want little gifts. We want to say, God, would you you make, make a little more peace out of my life? Pull out the shears, snip, snip, little trim, you know, little piece. Hey, God, would you bring some comfort in my life? Maybe an adjustment here. Snip, snip, little adjustment. Not too much. God, maybe maybe you will bring the perfect person to my life. You know, a, a little, maybe a little more contentment. Clip, clip, that would be fine. Do you know what I, Have you ever watched somebody prune bushes? Somebody really knows what they're doing. They cut the thing almost back to the ground. I mean, it's violent. It is brutal what happens when pruning is really done well. It's not snip, snip, trim, trim, clip, clip. It's like whack, whack. Right? And this is the analogy that Jesus gives to us. Thanks a lot, Jesus. You're coming not to just adjust my life a little bit. You want an extreme makeover. You want a complete overhaul. You want a transformation. This is what another C.S. Lewis quote. 
uh, for this morning. He says this, when I, had, when I was a child and I'd had a, a toothache, I knew that if I went to my mother, that she would give me something that would deaden the pain for that night and let me get some sleep. But I didn't want to go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. The reason I did not want to go was this. I did not doubt she would give me aspirin. But I knew that she would do something else. I knew that she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I I couldn't get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my my teeth set permanently right. And I know those dentists. I know they start fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth, which hadn't even started aching yet. They wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentists. Dozens of people go to Him to be cured of some particular sin of which they are ashamed, of which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, He'll cure you all right, but He will not stop there. That may be all you ask, but once you call Him in, He will give you the full treatment. Let's be honest. We'd like God to snip, snip, trim, trim, cut back our life a little bit, make some adjustments, little peace, little contentment, few gifts. That would be nice. And God comes in with the shears and begins making deep cuts. And if you've walked through a season where you're, you're, you're watching God do this in your life, you know what happens. Just like a healthy vine dresser will cut off grapes that are beginning to form, things that look like they're coming to fruition, things that look like this is going to be fruitful in my life, a good vine dresser will cut those things away. And so many of you look at your life and you're saying, Jesus, what are you doing? Those are my dreams that you just cut and left on the floor. That's essential parts of my character that you are cutting away right now. These are parts of me. That's that's me. And you're cutting it back? So you look at the floor and you're like, God, your purposed plan of suffering in my life is way too much. Let me ask you this. What's between the shears right now? Some of you know this very intently. This is very personal to you in this moment. There are things in your life that you're like, you're watching the blade. Slow motion come around. And you're like, I am going to die. I'm not sure I can live without that. I'm not sure there's me without that. And yet the vine dresser's cutting. Might have been missed opportunities. Here's what's impossible to believe in those moments. No random strokes. No random strokes. Tim Keller says this about the work of the vine dresser. He says, nothing is lost that was not a gain to lose. Nothing is kept except that which was not a loss to keep. Isn't that the hardest thing to believe? To believe? No random strokes? God really does know what He's doing? God really is cutting away in a purposeful way through suffering and pain in your life for your good, for your further future fruitfulness. See, to the untrained eye, It looks like violence. It looks like death. It feels like it. You know, what is why is God pruning you? Because He wants you to draw more upon Him. He wants 
when a vine dresser cuts back a vine, what happens to the vine is it has to draw deep within the stock. It has to draw life not from the leaves, but from deep within the stock. It strengthens it. What God is doing in your life, what God was doing in the life of these people in Smyrna, was causing them to have to draw on God, causing you to have to draw on God in ways that you never thought were possible. Why? I'm going to have to do this? See, the Smyrna church was doing that. The Smyrna church, these people, they knew this. There's no rebuke to them. Jesus is saying, you know, you're, you're, you're struggling under this trial. He says, no, there's trial, there's more to come. But he affirms them. And they're standing firm. And they're holding on. And they're drawing deep from God in that moment. This is where God is teaching you to speak a new love language. So I said before, we want God to come in with the gifts. And we're like, God, if you're not doing that, you must not be speaking love to me. Some of you are saying that this morning. God, where are you? Look at the dial. The needle's just spinning. I don't know where you are. I feel disoriented. I'm confused. Do you care? God, you don't love me. Some of you have kids. Some of you weren't kids very long ago. And you know this is how we, we interact. I, 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 I've told this story before, but I remember interacting with my son Clay. And I had thwarted his will and said, you cannot do this. This is not what, I can't let you do this. And he's sort of our drama king. And he says, you know, he said, this is the end of my life. And I'm like, really? <laughs> this is the end of your life. You know, you're six. How bad can it be? But don't we identify with that? I mean, it's funny when it's a kid. You're like, it'll never be the same again. You're six. You'll be fine. But and that, while that's cute and funny in kids, we do this all the time. We throw pity parties. We're like little kids just, you know, just freaking out. Because we have no perspective on a heavenly father who thwarts our will for our good. You know, I have to thwart Clay's will. I have to prune his desires. I have to cut back some of the things that he wants. As a good father, that's my calling. I don't live for my kids' happiness. I live for their health and their prosperity and their holiness. Your heavenly father loves you. He's not withholding his love. He's teaching us a new love language. He's teaching us a new love language. He's saying, look, what you've interpreted as love before is an immature definition. But are you looking at your life with an untrained eye? You know, there's one thing that's promised in this analogy of the vine and the branches is that every, every branch is cut. Every one. Every branch is cut back. This is coming in your life, whether it's happened yet or it is happening. How will you respond to that? There's a great article that was written a couple years ago by a woman named Paige, named, uh, Paige Benton Brown called this, Singled Out for Good by God. And in the, in the article, she describes what has been a long struggle into her late 30s with singleness. She talks about her loneliness. She talks about the sense of isolation. She talks about the sense of like watching friends get married over and over again and her life being sort of what she feels like is stuck. And I love the way that she, in this article, describes and holds on to the first and the last. The one who is the first and the last. Listen to what she says. 
Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers that God has not given to our list of whys, but rather on a celebration of the life He has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor am I single because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. Listen to these words. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is His best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I shall not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. I know, some of us scoff. We're like, yeah, right. But she's holding on to the first and the last. This is what she says. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date again and die an old maid at 93 because my God is so good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, I am claiming as my theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him. (laughs) Cheeky. I love Paige Benton-Brown's ability here to hold up Jesus, the first and the last. Do you see what she says? She echoes these words that are written to the church of Smyrna. She says, you know, Jesus says to the church, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. And she says, I have poverty, yet I am rich. What about you? What about you? Where is God in your life right now bringing purposed suffering? Where you look at yourself and at your life and you say, I don't know. I feel lost. I feel disoriented. Where is God in your life and he's got the shears around stuff that you feel like is essential? Is your God loving you? Does God love you in the midst of this? He desires nothing but your best. He who has ears to hear, listen to what God tells the seven churches. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.